Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, February 18th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how a medieval hatred of indexes mirrors debates today about how search engines are changing our brains. Plus, a roundup of the unceasing Wordle news and spin-offs. A thousand Porsches are on fire in the middle of the Atlantic. And how about a caffeinated donut with your space-themed Coca-Cola? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So you know that quote that gets thrown around a lot from the early 19th century of some adult saying, students today depend upon paper too much. They don't know how to write on a slate without getting chalk dust all over themselves. They can't clean a slate properly. What will they do when they run out of paper? End quote. It gets passed around a lot as a real quote dating back to 1815, but it actually first appeared in a 1978 issue of a mathematics journal alongside a series of other quotes written in the same structure saying that students can't prepare bark anymore and depend on their slates too much, and then students depend too much on ink and they don't know how to sharpen a pencil with a knife, and students don't know how to make their own ink and then they depend too much on fountain pens. Even though the Slate quote in particular gets passed around as a real quote, by all accounts the whole batch of them were satirical. But the point that it was making still stands. Some people have a tendency to think that new technologies and new ways of doing things will ruin the old ways and make society overall stupider or less self-reliant or more deviant or what have you. Writer and professor Dennis Duncan recently reflected on this tendency, specifically with regards to how the way we read and interact with texts has changed over the generations, from the close-reading scholarship of the Middle Ages to the oversaturated constant stimulation of today's connected world. Quoting Duncan, The way we read might not be the same as 20 years ago, but neither were the ways we read then the same as those of, say, Virginia Woolf's generation, or a family in the 18th century, or during the first flush of the printing press. Reading does not have a platonic ideal. What we consider to be a normal practice has always been a response to a complex of historical circumstances with every shift in the social and technological environment producing an evolutionary effect in what reading means. Not to evolve as readers, to wish that, as a society, we still read habitually with the same profound absorption as, say, the inhabitants of an 11th century monastery isolated from society with a library of half a dozen volumes, is as absurd as complaining that a butterfly is not beautiful enough. It is how it is because it has adapted perfectly to its environment. End quote. And the shift Duncan is talking about in particular here is that of the index, of the centuries-old battle between the concordance and the index, and how, thanks to ebooks, we're sort of making a return to the concordance, which is cool, but we also need to keep the index alive. This comes from an excerpt published in Literary Hub today from his new book, Index, Comma, A History of the, a bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. Now, technically, the concordance and the index first emerged around the same time, about eight centuries ago, but the concordance was held in higher regard in certain circles. 
And a concordance can also be called a word index, and then the kind of index that we're all familiar with today would be a subject index. The concordance, or word index, is a literal list of all the principal words in a text listed in alphabetical order. It is, as Duncan put it, quote, unfailingly faithful to the text it serves, end quote. It was especially used for long, important works like the Bible, classical Greek texts, and Shakespeare. A subject index, meanwhile, quoting again, balances its allegiances between the work and the community of readers who will come to it, end quote. Basically, it tries to anticipate the types of topics a reader of the book might want to find. And those topics may or may not ever be worded explicitly the same way in the text, and the topic might even include subsequent descriptions. For example, if you were picking up a copy of Mark Kurlansky's Salt, A World History, because you were researching the use of salt in preserving fish, you could go to the index, find the word preservation, and then beneath it, the additional subcategories, in this case, butter, eggs, fish, salt mines, and dead bodies. And maybe you'd get a bit distracted and go into the preservation of dead bodies before getting back on track with the fish. And I love indexes for that reason. They're very convenient for research. You know, whether you've read a book cover to cover or not, if you've got a huge stack of books for a particular research project, you're not going to remember exactly where in each book the relevant passages are, so indexes are super helpful. I use them all the time when pulling a book off my shelf for this podcast. But they can also be really fun to just flip through and find things like that, the preservation of dead bodies. I'm pretty sure casually flipping through indexes to find a rabbit hole to go down is one of Clive Thompson's tips for rewilding your attention that I've mentioned on the show a few times. But that exact way of interacting with books was one of the reasons that some people back in the day didn't like subject indexes. Even Galileo apparently said of so-called armchair philosophers, quote, In order to acquire a knowledge of natural effects, they do not betake themselves to ships or crossbows or cannons, but retire into their studies and glance through an index or a table of contents to see whether Aristotle has said anything about them, end quote. Critics said that with subject indexes, no one will fully, deeply, completely read books anymore. They would just hop around and read whatever excerpts they wanted. No more close reading. It would change scholarship. And, well, it kind of did. But that's not a bad thing. As Duncan said, we've been adapting to our environment, like the butterfly. You know, as more people became literate and read for more reasons, not just people whose entire jobs were scholarship of some sort, and as more types of texts came about, you know, novels, coffee shop, periodicals, scientific journals, etc., more and different types of reading proliferated, and our ways of engaging with texts necessarily shifted. And now, with the internet broadly and ebooks specifically, some of the ways that we read have shifted again. And Duncan thinks it's returned in part to a modern take on the concordance. At least for some ebook file types, there aren't page numbers anymore. So Duncan noticed that as a professor of English literature, when he'd ask students to turn to a particular page in a novel, the confusion was no longer what edition of the book each student was using, but now they didn't have page numbers at all in their Kindles and tablets, so they were asking for the first few words of the passage that they could then use the search function to find. 
Searching for the exact word is much more like going to the alphabetical concordance to find the exact word and then its corresponding location in the text. Quoting Duncan, The power of the concordance had been extended infinitely. Digitization had meant that the ability to search for a particular word or phrase was no longer tied to an individual work. Now it was part of the e-reader's software platform. Whatever you're reading, you can always hit Control-F if you know what you're looking for. End quote. And yet, in an echo of the pushback to the subject index hundreds of years ago, there are many, myself included at times, who say our reliance on search engines is nuking our attention spans and atrophying our memory capacities. And maybe there are some ways that it is, but it's also just another way of engaging with text and we're adapting to it. I hope, anyways, you know, I hope we are becoming better at searching and using those portions of our brains previously put aside to memorizing into deeper, more critical, and more creative thoughts. I've steadily been losing my optimism on that, but hey, maybe we don't need to be so much better than before. Maybe it's simply okay to adapt to different times and even out, no better or worse than we were before. Maybe Duncan has some more insight on this in the rest of his book, which again is called Index, Comma, A History of the, and at the very least, I can't wait to flip through the index of it. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. So I've been sitting on a bunch of Wordle stories because, well, they're everywhere, but I felt like I mentioned Wordle too much, so I kept putting them off, but the stories just keep coming, and all of the spin-offs also won't stop coming, so I thought I'd just wrap them all into this one roundup segment, and then we can cool off for a bit again. So the biggest Wordle story is that ever since creator Josh Wordle sold the game to the New York Times for an unspecified amount in the low seven figures, good for him, and that changeover went live, people have been complaining that the New York Times ruined Wordle. Which, alright, ruined... Maybe, I guess it remains to be seen, but the way that a lot of people are thinking that the New York Times changed the game just isn't exactly true. There was a string of tough solutions to the Wordles in the days after the changeover happened last week, so some people thought that the New York Times injected some of their elitism into the game to make it more of a high-bar challenge. And technically, the Times did change the list of possible solution words, but not so drastically. As I mentioned last week, they simply removed a handful of words that could be potentially offensive or that aren't so universally known. They actually tried to make it easier. But here's the one hiccup in that. 
not everyone is actually playing the game on the New York Times' site yet. If you access Wordle by searching for it or typing in the old powerlanguage.co.uk site every day, once the Times took control, there was a URL redirect, and you ended up playing on the very similarly-looking Times site no matter what. However, if you are in the class of people who either downloaded the original Wordle or have just kept Wordle open in a tab and never refreshed it, then you've still been playing on the original Wordle with its original list. Now, I thought this would be a pretty small minority of people, but based on reactions both on social media and in talking with my own friends, it seems like there really are quite a few people this applied to. And one of my friends who has never refreshed says she has now been switched over to the New York Times as of yesterday, but I don't know if that's true for everyone. But here is the real kicker. Because the Times took out some words, the solutions are no longer the same if you are playing the original version versus the New York Times version. And now, this could be kind of a spoiler if you are playing the original version, so just skip ahead 30 seconds if you are. I'm not going to say any word solutions, but it could still possibly kind of spoil you. Alright, so, rather than replacing the words they removed with something else, the New York Times just took them out. So everyone playing the original version is a day behind, and soon to be two and increasingly more days behind people playing the Times version which makes it that much tougher to avoid spoilers. But also, as James Vincent at The Verge points out, a big part of Wordle's success is the social and community aspect of it. So when not everyone has the same answer, you lose a bit of that. And I mean, I guess the solution is if you are feeling left out, play the New York Times version, but some people may balk at being forced to use the new corporate version. And they wouldn't be totally wrong to feel that way. Shoshana Wadinsky at Gizmodo reported yesterday that the Wordle page is now loaded with ad trackers. You can only see them in the code, they're not littering the page, and most of them were from the New York Times itself, but Gizmodo found that some did send data to third parties like Google. It's not a super terrible or unpredictable thing to have happened. In practice, it makes Wordle the same as most other sites that we visit, and those of us playing might see a few more ads for the New York Times when we peruse other sites. But it does feel like a bit of an affront to the original simplicity and purity of the game. As Wodinski outlines a worst-case scenario, quote, Ad trackers were created to shove t-shirts and mugs onto all of our timelines, but they can also be used for outright surveillance. There are countless cases of cops using the data gleaned from those ads to track protesters, immigrants, and anyone else they'd want completely warrant-free. And two of the companies that officers tap on the regular for this work, Google and Oracle, via its infamous Blue Kai subsidiary, are tied up in Wordle's shiny new trackers. Every time you open the page to see the day's puzzle to complain about how hard it is, the page pings details back to those companies, and the data it shares can be extremely detailed. At the very least, it's likely sending broad strokes to say you were on the site at a certain time while your device was in a certain location. And for instance, if a cop wanted to set a geofence warrant around your neighborhood, tracking which devices are caught in a specific area at a specific time, they could easily tap into Blue Kai's ad data to get those wheres and wins. And now the fact that you wordled at your local coffee shop on a Tuesday becomes one of the reasons that you ended up on some feds watch list for a crime you didn't commit but will somehow end up jailed for anyway. 
this absolute nightmare is almost certainly not what's happening on Wordle right now. And again, this scenario applies to most of the sites you likely visit every day, not just Wordle. But the real scary part about all of this, at least to me, is that it can. The digital ad industry is barely regulated even at the best of times, and there are literally thousands of players out there, each with their own labyrinthine way of routing your data from an app, a site, a fun little puzzle, to, well, wherever they want, as long as the money's good. End quote. So has the New York Times changed Wordle? Yes, but not exactly how it's being accused of doing so. And is the ad tracking kind of gross? Sure, but it's also not any different than most sites we visit every day anyways. And maybe it's just another reminder to use a VPN at the very least. But whether you've given up on Wordle or just want more, here's a handful of the Wordle spin-offs that I've heard about recently. First is Worldle, which I appreciate because it's how I misspell Wordle every time anyways. In this one, you are given the outline of a country or territory without any scale reference, and you have to guess which it is. And then after each guess, you are told how close you are and in what direction. It's a pretty fun geography challenge. There is also Primal for guessing prime numbers, and Reversal, where you're given the solution and the classic green and yellow boxes that show you how someone might have guessed to get to the solution, and then you have to fill in words that fit those guesses. It is a tough one. Dortle, in which you guess two words at once, and Quartle, in which you have to guess four words at once, have both been around for a while, as has Wordle Unlimited, which, like many of these spin-offs, lets you play as many games a day as you want. And if you want to play in your native language or practice other languages, there are versions in French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Swedish, German, Norwegian, and Hawaiian at least. And, of course, there's a number of themed ones like Star Wordle for Star Wars fans, Quirtle for the LGBTQ plus community, Lordle of the Rings for Tolkien fans, Taylordle for Swifties, and even Subwaydle for New Yorkers who for some reason want to bring the experience of riding the subway home with them. In Subwaydle, you're not guessing words, but you have to navigate between two given stops using only two transfers. Personally, I pretty much just stick to the original, or, well, sorry, the New York Times' Wordle, I guess. I like that I can't get carried away with more than one puzzle each day, although I do sometimes dip into Worldle to remind myself just how terrible I am at world geography. A cargo ship carrying over a thousand Porsches and other high-end cars is on fire in the Atlantic Ocean, now drifting off the coast of Azores in Portugal after its 22 crew members were safely rescued with none of them requiring medical attention. That is the most important part and turns this story from a tragedy into yet another supply chain headache. The cause of the fire remains unknown, but it was started in the 650-foot-long ship's cargo hold Wednesday morning as the ship made its way from Germany to Rhode Island. No word yet on how much of the inventory on board has been lost, but the ship was carrying at least 1,100 Porsches, 189 Bentleys, and an unspecified number of Audis. All told, Volkswagen Group told The Drive there were close to 4,000 vehicles on board. And being such high-end cars, a number of them, like editor of the smoking tire Matt Farah's, were custom builds. 
Farah posted that he'd been waiting for his Boxster Spider since August and received word from the dealer that his car is, quote, now adrift, possibly on fire in the middle of the ocean, end quote. And quoting from the New York Times, the fire comes as showrooms across the country are trying to meet consumer demand amid supply chain problems caused partly by the pandemic. Low interest rates, higher savings rates, and government stimulus payments have increased demand, while automakers have struggled to weather a shortage of computer chips. End quote. Neither Porsche nor VW Group have publicly stated their plans just yet. Likely, they're still trying to figure out what they can do. Meanwhile, the owner of the ship, called the Felicity Ace, is currently developing plans to recover the abandoned ship, according to The Verge. And we've had a lot of instances of books and consumer packages lost in the seas over the past year, but 4,000 cars caught on fire, no less, is pretty huge. And though the situation is definitely frustrating and worrisome for those involved, since no one was physically harmed, some people online have been bringing some levity to the situation. Journalist Evan Simko bednarski joked on Twitter, linking to the story, quote, "'Just this one last job, they told me,' end quote." And now I'm imagining, like, Roman Pierce completely botching some car heist on the seas that Dom Toretto roped him into. At least the Fast and Furious 10 screenwriters will be getting a little inspiration today. Well, I accidentally made this episode way longer than usual because I guess I had a lot to say about indexes and Wordle. Consider it a nice long episode to last you through the weekend. But there are two more quick things I still wanted to add here. First, Coca-Cola has just launched a space-inspired limited-edition drink called Coca-Cola Starlight. This is the first limited-edition product from their new Coca-Cola Creations platform, and while they describe it as, quote, "...combining great Coca-Cola taste with a dash of the unexpected, including a reddish hue, its taste includes additional notes reminiscent of stargazing around a campfire, as well as a cooling sensation that evokes the feeling of a cold journey to space," end quote. But they don't actually say what it will practically taste like. Some folks online have been guessing raspberry because of the reddish hue and because of some astronomers' claims a decade ago that the center of the galaxy could taste like raspberry, which is based on the presence of ethyl formate in the Sagittarius B2 dust cloud at the center of the Milky Way, ethyl formate being the chemical that gives raspberries their flavor. Anyways, a CNN reporter who got to try some Coca-Cola Starlight says it basically just tastes like red Coke, which I think we can all simultaneously not describe and also know exactly what she means by that. Coca-Cola Starlight will be rolling out in North America and select other countries on February 21st and comes in both regular and zero-sugar versions. But if you prefer your caffeine to not be liquefied, Hostess has just announced a line of caffeinated donuts. The Boost Jumbo Donuts will come in chocolate mocha and caramel macchiato flavors and will each contain 50 to 70 milligrams of caffeine, which is a little less than a small cup of coffee. And, I mean, hey, at least it isn't goober. But that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.